Hi, and welcome to another episode of Mike on MedTech, a show on the MedTech Matters podcast channel. I'm Sean Fetsky, Editor-in-Chief of MPO. Joining me, as always, is Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm well, thank you, Sean. So for this episode, uh, we looked at a list that the FDA had put out of 43s issued from its uh, electronic system. Uh, so it doesn't include any manually created uh, 483s, but from this list, you can certainly see trends emerge, and you know you get an idea of of what citations were were issued, uh, you know, most often. Um, and when we when we looked at the list, uh, it was pretty easy to see that the 43s around Kappa, uh, complaint handling, and design controls were fairly prominent, and they accounted for about a third of the, of the list that the FDA put out. This was for 43s in 2020. Um, so, Mike, my first question to you is, uh, if every company is required to have a quality management system in place, how do we get you know, the, this number of 43s around these three areas? Yeah, it's a... Terrific question, Sean, and as always, thank you for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and our audience on a, on a very uh, important topic. And unfortunately, it illustrates something that I've been saying for years and years, and that is, you know, even though, as you just pointed out, <clears throat> virtually every medical device company has and is required to have a quality management system. Just because they have a QMS and just because it ticks all of the regulatory requirements doesn't necessarily mean that it works. You know, a lot of people make the assumption that if they have a QMS and if it meets the regulatory requirements that it works. I've never made such an assumption, Sean, because I've just seen too many times where they do have a QMS in place and it just doesn't work. And I think these statistics that we're talking about today out of the FDA is indicative of the simple fact that just because they have a QMS in place doesn't mean that it works. Does that make sense, Sean, or is that being too overly simplistic or perhaps too overly cynical? No, I mean, I mean, if that, you know, if, if that's the reality of the situation, it's, it's quite unfortunate, um, you know, and it does go to, you know, the different types of, of, quality management systems, you know, if it, it would be great for something like that to have a, you know, a consumer reports where we could see, you know, what, what the most success rate is or, or which uh, QMS systems or protocols resulted in the fewest number of 43s. Um, but I suspect it's not just the system that doesn't work. It could also fall to the company that's using it or the user's in how they're using it, and that could also result in it not working correctly. Would that be accurate? I think so, Sean. And let me take what I said a moment ago a step further. Um, To me, uh, a quality management system is not a set of forms. Uh, it's, it's It's a philosophy. It's a way of doing business. I've seen it happen, and I can give you a number of examples, Sean, where companies don't even know what is in their own quality management system. So to have a Q 
QMS in a three-ring binder that sits on somebody's shelf or to have a QMS that sits in somebody's computer uh, that the people that are working in the company that they don't even know what's in it, to me, that defeats the whole purpose of having a quality management system. And if it would help, Sean, I'd be happy to give a, a quick anecdotal example. Sure. So I don't market myself as a as a uh, as a mock auditor, but I do spend some of my time going into companies and you know taking a look at their quality management system and you know kind of kicking the tires and giving them you know my recommendations on having on on how to make mm-hmm. it better. And I remember on one occasion, this was uh, a couple of years ago prior to COVID. I was in a company looking at their quality management system, and they had uh, examples of devices in their QMS that I didn't think the company made. And uh, long story short, I asked them about this, and they said, no, they, we don't make those devices. And I said, well, then with all due respect, why the heck are these devices in your QMS? They didn't even know that they were there, Sean. If this is not the quintessential example of literally buying forms off the shelf or buying a software package off the shelf and not knowing what's in it, you know, if that's not the quintessential example of copy and paste, then I don't know what is. So, again, to me, having a quality management system, it's not about um, a set of forms. It's not about paperwork. That, unfortunately, is what gives regulatory and quality a bad name. It's uh, not, right. not to be too, you know, sort of uh, philosophical here, but a quality management system is, 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 a, is a philosophy. It's a way of doing business. It's a way of thinking and, and approaching and solving problems. And again, we can go through a number of examples here, but that's sort of the, the root cause of, this, of, of the question that you're asking me of, you know, why are there so many 483s. And by the way, Sean, these statistics that we're talking about here are focusing on 483. Uh, those, are, those are FDA observations. The, the next most serious problem after that would be actually getting a warning letter. Unfortunately, we're not talking about those statistics here. Right, right. And and I you know I don't want to get into the to the you know the actual nitty gritty and the you know look at the actual numbers, but I believe the the total number of forty threes on this list was around sixteen hundred. Um, I think that was the number. Uh, but you know, and I and and I know you mentioned you know perhaps we're being a little too cynical. Um, so to put a little bit of a positive light. You know, there's something to be said, given the number of FDA-registered companies, given the number of site inspections. Now, granted, we, in 2020, this was, this was, you know, it may not be the best barometer, the measure, you know, the, the numbers are obviously a little bit skewed in terms of number of inspections and, you know, virtual versus in-person and et cetera, et cetera. But is 1,600 a, a relatively low number considering the number of FDA registered companies and you know device manufacturers I mean is that at least one positive spin on it it could be uh, and you know kudos to you Sean for trying to see the glass half full <laughs> as opposed to half empty uh, it could be it's I think what you're trying to do is put those numbers in context, which is obviously, you know, an important thing for all of us to do. Um, But here's the thing, as you just pointed out, for the last year with COVID, 
the uh, you know most of these inspections are being handled remotely uh, as opposed to in person. Well, one could easily argue that uh, the number is actually lower than, in fact, it would be uh, in "quote unquote" normal situations because right. um, now you're getting into the to the to the question of is a remote inspection as thorough as it would be if if the inspection was being done on ground or or face to face? And right. I think the answer to that question is is pretty simple. I think that these remote inspections, although they are appropriate in certain situations, like, for example, during COVID, um, they're probably not as thorough as they would be in, in the traditional on-ground audit, which is, you know, what, what has typically been done in the past. So if anything, Sean, I would say that the numbers are probably lower than they would be under normal circumstances. Right, and it'll be interesting. We'll have to we'll have to keep an eye out for the twenty uh, twenty one stats uh, when those come out, and and see if there's a comparison, and then perhaps even twenty twenty two because twenty twenty one may not even still be a normal year when it comes to inspections and and uh, uh, you know virtual versus in person. Um, Maybe not. Yeah. So, you know, if 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 one third of the of the 43s issued in 2020 are are tied to Kappa complaint handling and design controls. What are you know what are the other two? Two thirds is still a huge number, obviously of you know of of uh, 43s. What are the other ones primarily focused on? Yeah, they pretty much go across the board, Sean. They involve purchasing controls medical device reporting, uh, production and process controls, uh, process validation. I mean, it's pretty much across the board. All of the um, most important sections of a good quality management system um, are, uh, unfortunately, what companies are getting dinged on here. So, right. um, for example, uh, uh, purchasing controls. You know, most people think of, oh, gee, what the heck is the importance of purchasing controls? You know, that's just a matter of paperwork. Well, I would just remind you, Sean, that the root cause of the problem involving a lot of the surgical meshes, like the vaginal meshes and so on, that led to the largest single class action lawsuit in the history of the the medical device industry, nearly 100,000 uh, people affected by this particular device, this particular problem. The root cause of that was purchasing controls. So wow. a lot of people think that, you know, some of this stuff is just, you know, paperwork, but when you look at it from a, you know, tick the box kind of a perspective, as many people do, then maybe, you know, you might conclude that it's just paperwork. But when you go back to as I tried to describe at the beginning of our conversation, Sean, the philosophy of the, the quality management system, how you do business, the problems can actually be quite significant. The single biggest class action lawsuit in the history of the medical device industry, and maybe this is a topic that we might talk about at some point in, in a different uh, podcast if you want, Sean, uh, but was purchasing control. So, so they were pretty much uh, ac across the board. 
Yeah, well, if that doesn't get the attention of, of some executives, uh, hopefully listening to the to the podcast, uh, I don't know what would. And and maybe they're maybe they're pulling that that notebook off the shelf and uh, seeing <laughs> seeing the layer of dust that's on it, uh, and and rethinking their their. Uh, their uh, quality management system that they do have in place. Maybe talk to a few employees, see if they know what's in it, or you know how how to operate uh, based on the protocols that are in it. Um, you know, m- maybe take a second second look at that. Um, so perhaps of most value to to the listeners are your you know real world examples, your suggestions. So let's get to that. What are, whether virtual or in person, what are your recommendations, what are your tips, what are your suggestions for, you know, companies that are going through, like I said, live or, or virtual, uh, an inspection, and, and how can they avoid getting, you know, a 43? Great question, Sean, because the last thing that I want to do here is uh, as so many people do, just you know, to be blunt, you know, uh, the last thing that I want to do is just bitch and moan and groan about all of the problems because what's much more important is the solution. And absolutely, with all due respect, Sean, I don't want to wait until additional problems are identified by the FDA in an audit. I want to avoid that problem to begin with. In other words, <laughs> excuse me, I want to be proactive as opposed to reactive. And the perfect example of that, Sean, we're talking about it right now. <clears throat> Pardon me. The uh, most common reason why FDA has issued these 43s are CAPAs, corrective actions and preventative actions. Well, let's dig into that just a little bit further. One of the things that's driven me nuts about CAPAs over the years is why the heck do we call it a CAPA? In other words, a corrective action, preventative action. That is the classic example of thinking retrospectively as opposed to prospectively or reactively versus proactively. Why do we have to wait for a problem to occur in order to solve it and prevent it? Why don't we call a CAPA a PACA? In other words, a preventive action, corrective action. Why don't we put the emphasis on prevention as opposed to correction? Okay, so you might ask, gee, Mike, that sounds like an interesting idea. How would we do that? Perfect example, what we're talking about right now. Why doesn't a company, even if they did not receive a 483 in 2020, or maybe they haven't received a 483 for several years, well, rather than, you know, sitting back, you know, sort of fat, dumb, and stupid, as the expression goes, why don't they take this um, list of the top 10 most common reasons why companies have gotten uh, 483s and learn from their peers? In other words, take that list and ask themselves the question, could some of these problems happen to us? In other words, be proactive and look to avoid problems rather than being reactive and, uh, and responding to them only when the problems have been identified. Uh, and another example, Sean, I'll give you, you, you and I, um, I think as I recall, we spent several podcast discussions talking about the Netflix documentary, The Bleeding Edge. And right. one of the recommendations I made to people in our industry at that time was even if you were not 
uh, involved with one of the companies or one of the products that were highlighted, and I don't know if highlighted is the right word, John, but were, were <laughs> featured in the Bleeding Edge. Use that as a topic of discussion within your company and ask yourself the question, could these problems or similar problems, could they happen to us? Could they affect us? I'm right. taking the exact same approach here. Take this list, and we can provide references on the, the website, but take this list of these 10 most common uh, sources of 43s and parse them one after another after another and ask yourself the question, could these problems happen to us? Because one of the things that troubles me the most, Sean, is that the three big areas, which as you pointed out, you know, they, they represent about a third of all of the 483s, and I suspect a good chunk of the warning letters as well. Kappa's complaints and design controls. Are there any other sections of your quality management system that are more important than those big three? And right. if the answer to that question is no, isn't that troubling? That in spite of the fact, as you asked me at the beginning of our discussion, that we're required to have quality management systems, that somehow, somewhere, we're not connecting these dots because these, the, they're, they're just not working, and specifically in these big three areas of, of, of CAPA's complaint handling and design controls. Uh, they're, 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 so, so, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So, you know, being a little more proactive here as opposed to reactive, uh, maybe that's overly naive to some people, Sean, but to me, that would be a good place to start. Does that make sense, Sean, or did I just fall off the turnip truck yesterday? No, no, it absolutely doesn't. And in fact, it, it kind of, when you were describing it, it, it really kind of it hit me with, with it's exactly what we talk about with the healthcare industry, with, with you know, uh, value-based care and, and, you know, the healthcare industry in general. We've you know, the healthcare industry has always been a reactive industry and, you know, you, you, somebody gets sick and, you know, okay, let's cure that or let's, let's uh, treat that. They, they have this happen, let's treat that. And, you know, healthcare is trying to move to more preventative medicine and, and, you know, it's obviously people are, you have to, you know, bring them along kicking and screaming. Obviously it's not an easy transition, but, it, it's kind of the same thing that is happening in healthcare. These medical device manufacturers are serving that industry, and yet they're facing the exact same thing with something like this, with their quality management system, where they are reactive and they need to move to a preventative model. It's just it's kind of a, it's it's kind of amusing that the model is is the same, um, and you're kind of having the same struggle. Uh, at bo in both places. So in other words, Sean, are you suggesting that perhaps maybe there's a little bit of irony here, or dare I say it, perhaps there's a little bit of hypocrisy here? Do as I say, not <laughs> as I do? Well, I guess it all depends I'll on the I'll be that as a rhetorical here. question, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, so I know we did, you know, we talked about the pandemic and, and how it may have, had an effect on the actual numbers due to uh, live versus uh, virtual. But what about the virtual uh, inspections? You know, is there something to be said where 
you know, this was not something that everyone was accustomed to. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't, I'm sure this wasn't a smooth process for many companies out there. You know, going through an inspection is stressful enough when the inspector shows up at your door, uh, but, you know, all of a sudden being told, okay, we're going to do this virtually, and, you know, I need to be able to see your facility. I need to be able to have access to the paperwork. I mean, there are companies out there who, who just, I'm sure, just didn't know how to handle this. Is it possible that the numbers could have actually been increased in 20? And, again, we'll have to look at this, but just your own thoughts. Um, you know, is it possible that the actual, the, the virtual interface could have resulted in more 483s because of that situation, could, that it was more, more challenging to companies? It's certainly possible, Sean. But look, I would point out that the idea of virtual inspections are not new and, in fact, long predates COVID. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. there's been a trend more and more uh, before COVID for all of the obvious reasons in terms of cost to do more virtual inspections or what some people refer to as desktop audits and so on. Uh, so I think that argument is largely independent of COVID. I think uh, in some ways, in fact, COVID is a bit of a convenient excuse as it's become in other areas as well. But look, the mm -hmm. more important point that I would make is this. If a company is doing all of the things that they should do, and I think, Sean, you know me well enough. I'm not saying that the things that we're required to do by, you know, ticking the boxes, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But if the company is doing all the things that they should do, we should not fear FDA inspections. On the contrary, we should welcome FDA inspections. Because if we're doing everything that we should do, then FDA should not only come away with, you know, no 43 observations or warning letters, they should give us kudos, they should give us accolades, they should say, hey, you're doing all the things that you're, you know, you should be doing, and so on. And this is, you know, not to be self-serving, Sean, but this is why, although I do, I do not market myself as a mock auditor, that's quite frankly a job that I don't want to do, at least not full-time, but as I said earlier, I do get invited to come in to companies and um, uh, kick the tires of their QMS, so to speak, to make sure that right. they're doing all of the things that they should do to prevent these kinds of problems. And uh, one last thing that I would remind you, know, you and, and our audience of, Sean, when I give that kind of advice, it's not just simply from a regulatory or a quality perspective, but more so from a product liability perspective because a lot of the product liability cases that I've been involved with over the years, and this has become a, a growing part of my business, is a lot of the recommendations that I give to companies is not based on what FDA might be asking for, but what I see it coming out of you know, some of these product liability cases. So bottom line, Sean, and again, maybe this is being overly naive, I don't know, uh, you know, Plato <laughs> described it as, you know, the ideal world as opposed to the, the, the ideal plane as opposed to, you know, the, the real world. Uh, if we're doing the things that we should do, we shouldn't fear FDA. We should welcome them. Uh, that's, a, that's a different perspective than I think you get from, from most folks in this industry. Has that been your experience, Sean, or, again, am I smoking my socks here? <laughs> well, I, I will say... The one thing I the one thing I did pick up is you know I, I in in previous 
uh, podcast, one of your expressions uh, is, you know, is that that you're you're doing uh, what it, what equates to a C a C grade. So, so should a company <laughs> really be getting should a company really be getting kudos from the FDA for that for that? They're doing the what they're supposed to be doing. They're getting that that C grade, um, unless you know. Yeah. I expect kudos if they're getting that A. Um, and I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what that would look like, but I don't know if I don't know if the FDA should be giving a company kudos for a C. You know, uh, that's a good question. John. That, that's that's a very good question. You know, should we you know congratulating congratulate people for just passing? You know, <laughs> it's an interesting question. I suffice it to say, uh, and, and I know we need to to wrap this up, but I often. You know, when I meet people, they'll they'll tell me that they'll meet, they work in uh, you know quality assurance or quality compliance or you know some aspect of it. And I say, you know, quality as opposed to what crap. You know, so when we pass the test, when we meet the regulatory requirements, as you pointed out, you're exactly right. That is the academic equivalent of being a C student of just passing. I just think we as an industry. Once again, Sean, maybe as I'm getting older, I'm just naive, but I think we could and we should set the bar a little bit higher than that. Yeah, absolutely. That would, that would be, uh, and and I suppose uh, I suppose companies, uh, based on what you what you've said, uh, should should become more comfortable with a virtual audit or I'm sorry, a virtual inspection, uh, whether it be from the FDA or, or perhaps a, a, you know, a supplier or a, uh, or a, uh, I'm sorry, an OEM, um, but just become more comfortable. If you if you are bothered by a virtual inspection or a virtual, uh, you know, environment for, for interacting with the FDA or an OEM as a supplier, et cetera, um, you know, something to become more comfortable because it's probably going to be used a lot more going forward. Even if it was something that was on the table, it'll probably get even more attention now. I would agree. And just one last thing that I would add, I know we need to, to wrap this up, but to me, even a traditional on-ground audit uh, is not good enough if the inspector is simply looking at paperwork. In my opinion, right. and this is a very different view than probably a lot of people in our industry, um, but if I was an FDA inspector, and obviously I'm not, um, I don't want to just be sitting in a room looking at paperwork because if that's the case, then I might as well be sitting at my computer in my office looking at the same paperwork. I want right. to be able to get out onto the floor where the work is being done. And as, an, as a professional biomedical engineer, I want to be able to see the testing uh, that's being done and the inspection, you know, if it's uh, that, that's being done and so on. In other words, to me, this is not just a matter of paperwork. Uh, this is actually, you know, seeing and, and making sure things are, are being done properly. I'm not certainly not trying to imply that things are not being done properly, but, you know, it's the old Ronald, Megan, Ronald Reagan mantra, trust but verify. That's the intention. That's the, the, the purpose, if you will, of all of these audits. It's not just to make sure that you have all the documentation in place. Yeah, documentation is important. But at the end of the day, what's most important is, is the work being done properly? And just because it's being reflected in the documentation, to me, as an engineer, doesn't necessarily imply that it's being done properly. 
I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not explaining that well, Sean. Hopefully, uh, that's you, you understand. And, and maybe this is a topic that we can dig into in more detail in a, in a future discussion. If so, I would be happy to do that. Yeah, no, I think that was I think that was understood. I mean, it's it's um, a matter of you know what's on paper is actually uh, in practice, and and you know that's that you want to make sure that it's that it's actually happening. And it's not just like you said in the at the start, you know, a notebook collecting dust on a shelf. Um, that is actually being put into practice and, and understood by those uh, on that floor. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to use this metaphor, but since we just, uh, you know, finished our taxes here in the United States, it's kind of like, you know, the IRS taking a look at somebody's tax form and saying, okay, you put this particular number in this particular box. How do I know that that's the correct number? You know, that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Right. Fortunately, they don't do that. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah, right? All right. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have, though, for this episode of Mike on MedTech. Uh, I'd like to thank, as always, my guest, Mike Cruz, President of Vascular Sciences, for joining us and, as always, providing his insights and expertise. Uh, but until next time, this has been Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.